if someone like Mick Jagger can get sober, then I can as well, you know. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well, a show to help high performers improve their health and well-being. Do you ever tell yourself, I'm bad or I'm not enough? Then you're probably tired of holding yourself back, stuck in a cycle of self-sabotage and shame. And if so, you're not alone. As we learn today, shame has many layers. It creates a barrier to the life you truly deserve. Today's guest, Africa Brooke, is a globally recognized consultant, coach, speaker, and writer, and all-round fierce woman. If you're ready to let go of shame and embrace your true self, this episode is for you. For you, when you you know you told me that you grew up in Zimbabwe to the age of nine, um, and you were in a very Christian household, so I can imagine, just from the limited conversations that we have had, that growing up in that environment, conversations around emotions and difficult topics were probably not as approachable as mm. many. So, how do you believe growing up in that environment contributed to your experiences with addressing shame? I'm always very intentional with my words around my upbringing because it, it really is one of the first places that I learned how to understand the importance of holding multiple truths and multiple realities and realizing that certain aspects of life are bad, but also a lot of it is good, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, in the home that I grew up in and just culturally, a very religious household. So religious shame is something that is kind of inbuilt into the commitment Mm -hmm. and devotion into being part of a religion, which means there are just certain things you don't speak about. There are certain things that are never addressed. And if we're looking at shame in its simplest form, in terms of the definition, is the idea that you are wrong, right? Not even that you've done something wrong. And I, I love Brene Brown really makes that distinction that when shame is that you are wrong, whereas guilt is that you've done something wrong. And for me, mm-hmm. I find that to be a really simple and um, accessible way of understanding this really abstract concept. So for me, when mm-hmm. I think about it in that way that I am wrong, it's something that I started mm-hmm. to experience from a very, very young age, especially mm-hmm. because in the home that I grew up in, my father was an alcoholic And a byproduct of his drinking was that he was very physically abusive. And when I talk about multiple truths, it's it's the fact that I had to accept and to see the shadow of my father. But when he was sober, he could be absolutely wonderful. He was very thoughtful. He was very funny. He protected his family. He loved us. He was very charming. He was all of these things. But when he would drink, there was a big shadow to that. He was very abusive and verbally abusive. And you never knew what version of him you were going to get. So Mm. all of these things that were happening in our household, especially the darkness, you know, that came as as a side of his drinking. The next day, once he was sober, nothing was spoken about. It was never addressed, ever addressed. Even if we had just gone through so much turmoil the night or the day before. And even if he had beat us, beat my mum, all of us, it would just never be spoken about. So that's when I would say 
if I'm to kind of look at the blueprint of my life, that's when I first started to actually um, see shame as the default, just the feeling of shame, this idea that you're wrong, the situation is wrong, but you just don't talk about it, you don't address it. Mm. And the way religion comes into this is that you're told you go to church, that's where you share your problems with God in your head, in your prayer, you don't talk about certain things. So for me, I, I think it's it's been interesting now as an adult to understand this thing called shame and to have a language to express it because from a young age, I only ever experienced it intuitively. And also sexual shame is something that I experienced at a young age. Um, I would say when I was about six or seven years old, my mum saw me or found me um, rubbing myself against a couch. And children are very curious when they do something and it feels good. And a lot of mm. research and studies show that children actually experience themselves sexually at a very young age in terms of masturbation and just touching themselves. So when my mum saw me doing that, immediately she didn't shout or anything like that, but she was very disappointed and she was very embarrassed. I could see it in her face. And she just said, you don't do things like this. Girls don't do things like this. So again, the shame, I immediately I felt so wrong, but there was no explanation mm -hmm. as to what is wrong. I just knew that my mum was very disappointed, but also very embarrassed. Like it was a humiliating thing to see her child doing this. Um, mm. So for me, that's when that imprint of sexual shame was put into place. And she, my mum's a wonderful woman, but we, none of us had the tools to have certain conversations, to have difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. So it's just a very visceral response. And then it's never spoken about again. But now the seed has been planted. So for me... I, I would say those are kind of clear examples that I have of my first dance with shame, if you will. Firstly, like your just openness and awareness around this is just so inspiring because I know many people listening to this, hopefully within points throughout our conversations, will mm. reference, acknowledge, relate to everything you're saying. And you've got this incredible vulnerability and awareness to speak about it. And I really want to delve into that a bit more. But kind of before we get there, something yeah. as you were talking about even the sexual shame or even with your father, you know, the next morning, the morning after we've all had those mornings when we've woken up right. and we've just not wanted to address it. It's too uncomfortable to go there. Mm -hmm. I want to ask, did shame ever inflict moments of paranoia? It made me kind of um, question my own reality sort of this thing mm. of, am I the only one seeing this? Because I have, there's four of us in my family in terms of siblings. So I have two older sisters, one younger brother, and we're all sort of close in age. So when all of these things would happen, and then it's just never spoken about again, and then everything is fine for a few days, but then it happens again, and then it's maybe even bigger um, and more painful than the last time, and then it happens again, then it's just not spoken about, and then maybe we go to a relative's house for a few days, and then we... So it, you can feel that something is happening, but you're mm -hmm. not being told that something mm -hmm. is happening. So you do start to question your own reality in the sense of, am I the only one seeing this or experiencing this? So I think that's where, that's where I can really relate to what you're saying, that kind of... Um, just the un uncertainty and, and anxiety that comes with that as well because you have no idea what is going on. You're having to work with these feelings just by yourself in isolation internally mm -hmm. to the point where that mode of suppression just becomes the norm 
You just, mm-hmm. you, you almost normalize this idea that when bad things happen, you don't talk about it. You just feel what you feel, but you deal with it internally yourself. You don't talk about it because something mm-hmm. bad might happen if you do talk about yeah. it, you know. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's, that's what I would um, associate with that. And I'm curious to know, have you experienced anything like that or what your first recognition of, of shame was I'm, I'm really curious about that yeah it's interesting because as you're talking about it from you know your culture and upbringing in Zimbabwe I also relate to a lot of British culture where it's kind of you mm. sweep everything under the carpet and you don't talk about it um, my grandmother was heavily Christian so we were all christened mm. my dad isn't but my mum is um, and I have a gay brother and he was terrified around bringing out this conversation. You know, we lived just outside Portsmouth. These conversations just didn't happen. And we are best friends. So you can feel someone else's pain um, a lot, especially when you're very close to that person. So although it's not my own shame, I think I carried a lot of his um, pain along the journey yes. because I feel like he couldn't be his true self. And so there's definitely moments of, you know, even though it's very different on what we've held, and I've definitely not had you know, traumatic moments. Um, when in my younger days, I kind of think they came in my modeling days more. Right. That's where the, the kind of the paranoia came up because I think the more that we suppress something, the more that that anxiety builds and builds and builds. And I know that you speak, you know, a lot about how you dealt with that, how you dealt with, maybe it's not just the shame, but all of the stuff that you went through, like how that led yes. to you at 14 with with your drinking. And I'd love to kind of come on to that because I think there's a lot of shame surrounded as well about yes. how we can deal with those feelings. From as as young as I could remember, actually, my, my dad was always a very big drinker. And as I think is usually the case for most people that end up having a very destructive relationship with alcohol, it kind of starts as a socializing thing, as a fun time thing, you know. Um, and then it just sort of takes off. And my dad's story and path was no different. And I think also mm. because of the economic decline in Zimbabwe that added a lot of stress to people, especially men, men who are supposed to be the providers, men who are supposed to be leading the family financially, etc. And he wasn't. And my mum was. And he, he felt a lot of shame around that, which is very interesting mm. because that's when he started to get even more physically abusive because he was very resentful that my mum had kind of been put into a position of being the breadwinner and he felt like he had nothing to contribute. So he would drink a lot of his pain away, a lot of his shame. But from a very young age, the reason I mentioned that is because I think that's where I kind of started to see this blueprint and this idea that you drink your problems away. And I never mm. would have realized that at the time. But that was the messaging that I was getting. If my dad was stressed or something bad was happening, he would just go have a drink. Sometimes he would come home drunk, but he'd be very happy and laughing, having a good time, playing with us, etc. So it was, it was a very confusing messaging. But at the core of it was, if you have a problem, if you have an issue, you don't talk about it, you just have a drink. So when I was 14 years old and we'd moved to the UK, and drinking culture is very big in in the UK, especially if you're at a young age. It's just kind of seen as part and parcel of growing up. 
And Mm -hmm. the way that I was drinking in the beginning with my friends was no different from everyone else. You're in the park, you're having a drink. It's not like, you know, you're you're not swirling a glass of wine trying to pick up the the chocolate notes from, no. Mm -hmm. You're drinking to get fucked up. That is the goal, Mm -hmm. that is the intention. Um, But for me, a lot of the shame that I felt around being an immigrant, where I, I suddenly was in a place that was very different from my home, whether it's in mm. terms of the people around me, the language. And yes, English is the second language in Zimbabwe. So at least I came to this country being able to speak the language, but I spoke the language with an accent, an accent that I didn't mm. even know I had. Um, even my race is not something that I ever had to think about, had no idea what the word race was, had no idea that the word black is what's used to define the color of my skin. I just, so many things that I wasn't aware of at the age of nine, where you're young, mm. but you're still old enough to to kind of um, understand what is happening and to take in context, but to also be confused by it. So there was a lot of shame around my differences. Again, if we're thinking about shame as I am wrong, I haven't done anything, mm. but I, yeah. as a person, am wrong. It's it's inbuilt in my identity. There's there's a flaw that's always going to exist within me. Um, and other children highlighted that, you know. So for me, when I drunk for the first time, again, all of that quietened down. All of it, the mm. shame, the insecurity, all of that was completely silenced. And that was the pattern that I then followed, the drinking pattern that I followed of binge drinking and then inevitably blacking out, binge drinking, blacking out um, for 10 years from the age of 14 to 24. So I, I encountered shame from a very, very young age in childhood when it was happening on a very unconscious level, but I also was confronted with it at the age of 14 when I knew that I feel ashamed and I feel insecure, but now I have this thing called alcohol that I can use to silence it. And then eventually, which I'm sure we'll get into when I got sober, is when I had to deal with all of that generational shame, but through a lens of absolute clarity, with no alcohol, no other vice, just me. And the Mm -hmm. desire to get better, the desire to get well, the desire to get sober, the desire to form authentic relationships with people. But again, that, um, that through line of shame is something that I think for a while I thought it was just the alcohol. I thought it was just me. I'm morally flawed as a person. But again, that blueprint is something that was formed before I could even consciously recognize it. Mm. And I'm just, as you're talking about that, thinking of you at 14, the first moment when you when you had that drink, were you drinking and thinking, this is, I am wrong for doing this? Or did you, were you drinking and thinking, this is my route to escapism? Mm. I don't, you know what, I don't think it was either of the two. I didn't feel wrong. And I didn't even think of it as escapism, at least not consciously mm. anyway. Yeah. I, it was to belong. It was to belong because my differences were so stark, being an immigrant, yeah. being in a new place. I, I I just wanted to prove that I could also partake, mm. you know, feeling so ashamed in who I am as a person, so wanting to prove myself in a certain way. So for me, drinking is something that because of the age, I just wanted to try it. All of my friends are doing it. But on a much deeper level, it almost seemed like... Um, the real mission there was to belong, was to connect with people. Mm. So I was willing to do something that 
maybe I shouldn't have been doing, but I, I, I was willing to override any of those kind of concerns or my conscience or anything. Um, so I, I would say belonging was at the core of that. And then eventually it became a form of escapism. That feeling of having to change a behaviour to fit in is one I think everyone can relate to in some shape or format. But it's interesting how much that can completely dictate you as a person. You know, it's yeah. interesting how that, that feeling of wanting to belong and find your tribe at such a young age has such an impact then for the next 10 years of your life. So would you be able to just talk us through those, those 10 years um, and how shame basically brought you to a place of ultimately completely stopping? So for me, and I, I want to read out this definition that I found. I think it's when I was reading out, um, when I was reading and researching some of the work and teachings of Brene Brown, who again is just a legend when it comes to shame. She said in one of her talks that shame is insecurity that attaches to self-identity and gets in the way of action or vulnerability. And that piece for me stood out the most, that it gets in the way of action of vulnerability. When I started to drink in the way that I did, even at, at such a young age as 14, the it's almost like I built this character. I built a character that I thought would be acceptable, a character that other people would love, a character that could just be confident and didn't have any worries, didn't have any issues. And alcohol was the vehicle for me to actually align with this version of myself that I created. So it meant that I was limiting how deep I could go with people. It meant that I wasn't giving myself the opportunity to be truly vulnerable because I was always in a state of performance, if you will. So this, again, when we talk about blueprints, this is another blueprint that I then created in terms of how I relate to people. It meant that I always had a, had this protective field around me where people couldn't really get to know me because I thought who I truly was was unacceptable. I thought who I truly was was humiliating or embarrassing in some way. And these were feelings that I'd never had before. I, I was always confident about who I am, where I'm from, my family, etc. But now when you come to a completely different environment where your differences are positioned as something wrong and bad, especially as mm. a child, you want to run away from that as far as possible. So I did the running, but also alcohol allowed me to... Um, run in a way that most people wouldn't see as running, you know. Mm. So by the time that I was 19, again, I am still drinking in this way. It wasn't all the time, by the way. It was just that when I did drink, there wasn't an off switch. I, I just mm. took it as an opportunity to just live and to be as reckless and just free as I want to be. And when I was 19 is when I started to notice that something isn't quite right about the way that I, I drink. I, I shouldn't be blacking out this much. And the thing is with blacking out, which is when you drink so much in such a short space of time, typically, that your brain stops making short-term memory. So you almost have like a like a amnesia of sorts. So someone could bring up something that you said half an hour ago, but you can't remember yourself saying it. So this was happening to me over and over and over again. And I would just wake up the next days just feeling immense shame. And a lot of people will know this because when you've drunk so much, even if you don't go into a state of blackout, and then you wake up the 
next day and then you have a hangover, but you also feel this immense anxiety and, and shame, mm-hmm. right? That you've done something mm-hmm. wrong. Did I say something wrong? What did I what did I even do? How was I with this person? But all of these things that bring up just so many gross feelings. A lot of people will be very familiar with that. But I would experience this pretty much every single time that I drank. So from the age of 19 to 24, I was actively trying to get sober. I, I knew something was wrong. And it's when I started to make the connections of how my father used to drink and his relationship with alcohol. And again, I had to do a lot of this on my own in the sense that making those connections between me and my father and that history, because again... Things have changed a lot in my family now, but even at that time, everything was still very hush-hush. Even if people could see that I was struggling in a way, they just didn't know what to do. They, they didn't mm. have the tools. Everyone felt their own shame, so they don't know how to bring it up. They don't know how to talk about it. There's just a lot of passive-aggressive behavior because I know that I'm bringing all of this into our household and everyone else has their own stuff, so now I'm kind of a problem. So it intensifies that feeling of shame. So I started to, by myself, make those connections of how my father used to drink. And I've always been someone that's very curious and into reading and personal development and psychology. So I would just Google a lot of things, wanting to find out, is it normal to drink this much? What happens to the brain when you drink this much? Um, Even trying to see what celebrities got sober because I would see that, okay, if if someone like Mick Jagger can get sober, then I can as well, you know. it Just taking whatever I can is inspiration. So I tried very actively from 19 to 24 to get sober and I relapsed seven times and throughout this entire time I was realizing just how much shame had a hold on me because I still felt like I am wrong I'm never going to change I'm always going to be a fuck up I'm always going to be this person I won't be able to do it and um yeah so so for me from 19 to 24 is where I would say that I I couldn't run away from it anymore. I, I couldn't run away from it anymore, but I still believed that I could get better on some level, which is why I kept trying to get sober. But I think the shame was so intense that any time that I started to get well, any time I was sober for a few weeks or a month, I always say it in this way that it, it's it's like I was used to being in a state of chaos and drama and feeling that shame, that it actually got comfortable. So when I got well, it would become very uncomfortable that I'm actually well and better and I don't, and I actually feel free, you know. It's not that things got really bad and I would feel like I need a drink. It wasn't that. I would feel like I actually don't need a drink. Everything is fine. And that's when I would feel uncomfortable and then sabotage myself and then go into the shame spiral again, which I didn't want, but it was more comfortable than me being well. So that mm-hmm. was my cycle up until the age of 24. And I can see some recognition in your face. So I want to know how you resonate with that. Just throughout my life, even through observing others and observing myself, there's mm. always this attraction, right, to not drama, but you know, things can't always be this good or what's going to happen next or it's that kind of perception that something's going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people can can relate to that. And I, I can hear that in your voice when you're talking around, you know, actually I was feeling calm and a lot of that I'm thinking is you didn't, maybe you didn't have as much calmness at home so you were always prepared for that flip switch of when it could right. go wrong. 
So your awareness is much more heightened. Have you ever mm. been able to have that open conversation with your parents around all of the feelings that you felt as a child? That's such a good question. And actually for me, and I have a feeling this might be the case for quite a lot of people, I couldn't have those conversations with my family first. Now we can have those conversations, but I actually had to have those conversations with strangers first. And it, my situation might be a little bit different in that at 24, when I finally stopped drinking, and this was six years ago, I didn't know anyone that was sober. I felt so much shame to even speak with my family about the way that I felt. Um, I remember at one point in time telling, I think, my mom that I was depressed. And she kind of just dismissed it. She didn't dismiss it in a malicious way. She dismissed it in the way that I would expect the stereotypical African religious parent to dismiss it in that they don't really understand what this depression thing is. Is it just an excuse? It was, it was kind of like that. But she just didn't understand. And I think that's where I, I really kind of went in to myself and just knew that with my family, especially as things are right now, with the awareness that we all have right now, this is not where it's going to happen for me to share very openly and feel like I'm going to be received in the way that I need. So I didn't have any sober friends and I've always been someone that writes. So I went online and I started sharing my story. I was writing anonymously at the time in 2016 and I was just sharing my struggle with alcoholism. I was sharing the shame that I felt and everything that I had done, everything that I'd been through. But it was easy to do it in that way, not only because I was anonymous, but I was speaking into a void with no one particular in mind. But even if I was speaking to a set of strangers and knew that I was speaking to a set of strangers, they don't know me. They don't have anything to compare it to. They can judge me, but they also don't have to judge me in a specific way because they know me personally or to say, you know, you've tried getting sober before. Sure, you're going to do... There wasn't any of that. I could just share and be free. So sometimes it's actually much easier to share your innermost your mess and all that wonderful stuff that is debilitating right now but needs to be worked out, it's much easier to share it with people that don't know you, which is why therapy mm. is so powerful because you're in an environment where there's no judgment. It's very objective. There's no bias. Whereas with family, even partners, there's that personal and historical connection and that context which can sometimes make it very difficult for you to share the truth of what you need to. So for me, now with my family, we can speak about those things, but I had to speak about it and to really be honest about it with strangers and people that don't know me instead of the other way around. Mm. I think it's so powerful to hear that, isn't it? Because I think, again, it can approach a lot of shame that we yes. feel not strong enough to have those conversations. Yes. Um, and those conversations hold a lot more power when... There's a deep personal relationship there. Absolutely. And so it's easier just to, to not have them. How do you find having those conversations with your family now? Because I think now you speak so openly around so many yes. powerful subjects. But how have you managed to get there with that authenticity? It's been practice. It's a constant practice. It's not a, it's not a one and done. I have been speaking consistently and as authentically as fucking possible, even when I'm very uncomfortable. I have been doing that consistently for six years. 
So I've really, on a practical level, I've trained myself and my voice. And I think this is a very important piece for anyone listening to take away, that none of this, whether it's cultivating a more courageous voice, whether it's coming to terms with certain aspects of your past and deciding what you want to share, what you don't want to share, all of it is a practice. You're quite literally practicing, not only speaking, but hearing yourself saying these things, right? So for me, it has been that element of just practice, practicing talking. But also, I think something that I find really interesting is that even though I'm very confident and very outspoken and I, I'm willing to go anywhere and everywhere, there's still areas of resistance with my family when it comes to certain things. Because family, there's a they activate a different part of you. And even if you're 25, 35, 45 or 55, when you're with certain family members, you feel like a child again because you click right back into that family dynamic where the the patterns and the communication patterns, the behavioral patterns kind of just revert back to what you are. So something that I do very actively when I sit with my family and we're having important conversations is I remind myself that I'm not a child anymore. And that's been really important for me and my family's dynamic actually because when I stopped treating myself like a child and started having those conversations, it allows, of, of course, it depends on the personality types in your family, depends on a lot of things. But for me, it allowed for everyone else to follow suit in a way that works for them. So I realized that I just have to focus on what I can control. I am not a child anymore. I'm a woman that is now in her 30s. I'm a 30-year-old woman. And I get to speak from the place that I'm at now. When I'm talking about things that I've experienced with my family publicly, I'm very mindful and very intentional that I only speak from the I. I only speak about mm. what I have experienced. I don't try to speak for anyone else. I won't overshare. It's from a place of very sincere and intentional self-reflection. But I also will not try to protect anyone else. I won't do that. I'll be very honest about what has happened, but I'm, I won't try to protect anyone else. We all get to share our stories and we get to do that mindfully. And I think my family really respects that. My mom is my biggest fan. She listens to everything that I do. She loves it. She's going to be listening to this one too. Um, oh, hi, and mom. she loves, <laughs> hello, mama. And she loves it. She loves the honesty and she loves, she loves it because it also allows us to share stories. And then she tells me little moments that have happened, things that I don't know. So I think in allowing myself to be brave, it also serves as a permission slip for other people in my family to be brave as well. So now we're so close and we, and I, you know, I had so many assumptions about what my mum would share and would not share, that she's an uh, African religious conservative woman, but she's also very open and wild and liberated. And through me sharing in this way, again, it just serves as a, as a permission slip. So I'm, I'm really lucky that I've seen that as a result in my in my family I mean that's amazing isn't it it just shows you how vulnerability and authenticity as Bernie Brown would say you reference her a few times and I mm -hmm. she is someone who I'm dying to get onto this podcast you will um <laughs> you will. because I'm so inspired by her and I think you know that does bring closer relationships because it yes. really brings out the real you the connection that you really care about, it, it rips away that surface level. But I do feel that as time goes on, and maybe this is me sounding old, but we're losing that authenticity. We're losing mm. 
we're losing one even being authentic with ourselves, which I think is a really interesting dynamic because there's losing that authenticity with others, but then there's also losing that authenticity with yourself, mm. even lying to yourself, um, which I think so many people struggle with, whether it's being honest in their journal um, or being honest in the mm. choices that they're making. Something I would love to ask is at 24, when you when this really changed, and firstly, I haven't said it and I should have said it, congratulations, six years is unbelievable milestone in where you've got to and you know, you're just continually growing and developing, but like that six years is such an achievement. Um, So, you know, everyone who is listening to this is going to be inspired. And I would just love to know, like in that moment, in that, in that moment when you woke up and you were like, you know, I'm going to take ownership here. I'm going to actually really make a change. How did you get the confidence or the ownership or the self-responsibility or all of those kind of things that come together and what you just said you can control? What Mm. happened in that moment? Can you talk me through it? Thank you for listening to this episode so far. I want to quickly tell you about my sponsor, Arena Flowers, who I personally reached out to to sponsor the show as I've been a loyal customer of theirs for two years and I love everything about them. If you follow me, you'll see arena flowers are always around my house and they really brighten up my day. For me, a vital pillar of my self-care routine is self-love and having flowers around my house is so important for me to achieve that. If you're watching the video version of this episode, you can see spring has well and truly arrived at my house. But what sets them apart from the rest? Arena flowers are the UK's number one ethical florist. All their bouquets are hand-tied and delivered in fully recyclable or compostable packaging and free from single-use plastics. Plus, their flowers are sourced from fair trade certified farms. So if you're ready to put a smile on someone's face and positively impact the planet at the same time, download their app now and enjoy free delivery plus 20% off your first purchase. And if it's a last minute present, make sure you order before 9pm for next day delivery. And of course, you're more than welcome to send me some. You know, I, I would love this part to be to be that story where I talk about how I woke up and I said to myself, you know, I deserve to be better. I deserve to be well. I'm doing this for me. And I'm, it, it wasn't like that at all. I was forced to. I was forced to. I was losing everyone and everything around me. I could barely stay in a job for longer than a month. And that month would just feel so debilitating and long. I was... Um, very unhappy. I've never used the word depression in relation to uh, any experiences that I've had. But I would say that's the closest that I was to actually being depressed. But the reality was that I was losing my relationships. Everyone was distancing themselves away from me. It was just my best friend, Roxanne, and my boyfriend, my wonderful, wonderful boyfriend, Billy, at the time. And... um, They told me that if I didn't change something, they couldn't stay anymore. So I got sober, yes, for myself. And this is in the beginning. Yes, for myself and that I knew that it was something I needed to do. But I I had been so used to that cycle of 
saying that I'm going to do it, staying sober for a little while and then just, you know, getting back on onto everything. And just, I was so used to that cycle that even when I said that I'm going to try it, you know, I didn't fully believe myself and it wasn't entirely for me. It became entirely for me, I would say about two months later, three months later, but I did it so that I wouldn't lose the last two people in my life. And I think that was actually such a gift that I was doing it for someone else or rather other people. And then eventually through me, one, understanding that shame was the thing that was just at the core of everything. I was trying to strategize. All of those other times that I tried to get sober, I was applying strategies. I wasn't actually addressing what was at the core of everything. I was not addressing the shame. I was not addressing the trauma. I wasn't addressing the deep insecurities within me. I was just saying, okay, I'm going to stop drinking. I'll stop drinking for six months. And this is also important for, for anyone listening, whether it's about getting sober or making any other change. Be mindful of where you're taking a strategy-first approach when actually you need to be taking an identity-first approach and then pairing it with a strategy that actually works. So for me, I was jumping to the strategy. I need to get sober. Okay, what are the steps? What do I need to do? I'll stop going to this place. I'll stop hanging out with this person. I won't... It, just so many strategies without addressing the shame that was that was driving everything. So what allowed me to get and stay sober for this long is that I addressed the shame. I asked myself, what did I actually feel and believe was wrong with me? Then I asked myself, if, if any of those things were actually true, do I have evidence that there's something that is so fundamentally wrong with me and that I can never change? And I didn't have any evidence for that. And then I also went back to research and self-study to understand what's happening to the brain and what's happening to the body when it comes to alcohol. Then I was led on a path of seeing how... Um, alcohol companies market towards women, for example, kind of the branding and the colors. And so I was able to take a very objective approach for the very first time in my life and trying to get sober. I was able to zoom out and to realize that actually this is not a moral failing. It's not just because I'm a bad person full stop and this is what I'm going to be for the rest of my life. It's when I came across the concept of self-sabotage when you get in your own way and then that just led me on a completely different path. And that helped me stay sober. And then it became for me. So it was no longer about Roxanne or Billy. It was now about me and getting better and all of this work that I was doing. And because I was sharing it at the same time publicly, I was able mm -hmm. to hold myself accountable publicly. So it wasn't a private thing where if I relapsed, no one's going to find out. I kind of had to stick with it. So yeah, that, that was my journey of actually addressing the shame, seeing it for what it is, realizing that I had been taking a strategy-first approach for all of those years and that, that had never worked and it was never going to work. And then zooming out of my very subjective experience and then making it a more objective thing, which is what has led me to do the work that I do now. It's such a large topic as I'm hearing you talk about this. And as I'm yeah. listening, I'm just thinking gosh, why do we not approach this more? Why do we not have more conversations around shame? It's one of the biggest barriers to change. It's one of the biggest barriers that we feel that we can't do something. Mm. Um, and I'm just wondering, as you're talking about that, how can we create safe spaces for people listening to this to feel 
that they can be more open and more authentic surrounding this topic, having these conversations, but then actually giving tools to people to be actually feeling that they can do this, you know, because it's really inspiring listening to people's conversations. But I also think a lot of people then still feel that they can't make that step. Mm -hmm. And something around me creating the BY Collective was having a safe space for people to feel that they can be whoever they want to be um, without judgment to let those barriers down. Because for me personally, being in the the fashion world from 15 years of age, there was all these barriers to who I had to be and how I had to act and how I was perceived. And you said something really profound around a character that you formed. And I totally Mm. formed a character on what because my self-worth was judged and how I was looked and perceived. Right. How do you feel, you know, now in the work that you do, that we can create this safe space, you know, to bring acknowledgement that people can actually have these conversations without feeling that resistance, that push-pull that many of us can get into? I think the the first thing that I would say is that you have to create that safe space within yourself. I think there's something to be said for us having the communities and environments and spaces which we can bring our full selves and be in our fullest expression, bring all of our mess, bring all of the things. But before that can even happen, all of those individuals that will be in whatever that environment is, they need to have created that within themselves on some level. And I would say this is where self-responsibility comes in. You know, there's this um, quote or this thing that goes around where people talk about how um, you're not to blame for whatever has happened to you and whatever has you have experienced in your life, but you are responsible for how you move on, right? You are responsible for how you then get well. You're responsible for the decisions that you make once you have the awareness of what has happened to you. And I think that's such a beautiful thing because it acknowledges what has happened, the adversity that you've experienced, even the things that you have done to other people, right? You have to be honest about all of those things. Self-accountability is number one, but there has to be an element of self-responsibility and self-forgiveness. So I think if a lot of us learn to forgive ourselves for the things that we have done, but also for the things that have happened to us, I think it's, it's one of the first places we can start to make peace with that. And I think it's also so beautiful that we're in the age of information, where if mm. you have a specific challenge, something that is so unique and so specific, you can simply search for it and there's going to be something that can support you in getting clear on the answer Mm. that is right for you. So for me, I think there's so many different ways I could answer your question, but I think coming back to the self is something that we can all do. It's something that we can actually control. It's something that we can give ourselves as much time as we need, but there has to be an element of self-accountability, self-responsibility and self-forgiveness. And Mm -hmm. then I think through that, we will then have the clarity to be able to find the communities where we can then come together with other people and share and be open. And it doesn't have to happen in the public at all. It can can be Mm -hmm. something that happens privately. But yeah, I I think that's something that I would put Mm. forward. What for you allows you to every day still show up to have these conversations? I'm so very clear on what my intention is. And I think that's a good place to start for anyone, 
regardless of whether it's a difficult conversation you need to have with your partner or with an employee or there's an idea that you want to share or you're stepping into a new project or you want to leave a project, whatever it is, I'm always very clear on what my intention is. And for me, part of that intention is to connect. I want to create connection. I see that we're more disconnected than ever. We're hyper-connected in the sense of technology and in the advancement of, you know, the different things around us and the way that we live. We're in a time of convenience. How can we make things faster, more convenient, etc.? But also, there's an epidemic of loneliness. There's so much polarization. There's so much division. There is so much fragmentation. So for me, a purpose that that was kind of discovered when I was trying to get sober, when I was so disconnected from people in terms of relating, I my, my intention is always to connect. Even if it means that the road there is uncomfortable, what I need to say is direct, it's uncomfortable, it's unconventional, it, it requires me to be a maverick, it requires me to be brave. My intention is connection. And with mm-hmm. my work specifically, I know that it's not about me. This is much bigger than me. If I can put something out there that can serve as a permission slip for someone, then it's exactly what I will do. If I can have a difficult conversation that will result in my relationship with someone becoming deeper and richer, that's exactly what I'm going to do. If I can put something out there that is going to allow for people to think about things a little bit differently, to refine their worldview, to come to their own conclusion about things instead of taking in what they're supposed to think, how they're supposed to feel, then that's exactly what I will do. So because I'm very clear on all all of those things, it allows me to still show up. It allows me to still be visible in a way that feels good for me, in a way that feels true. So even though I'm a very confident person and I'm very outspoken, I'm also someone that likes to sit in silence a lot. I'm also someone that likes to observe. I'm also someone that knows that just because you think something, it doesn't mean that you have to say it out loud. I know that Mm. there's a time and a place for everything. But at Mm. the core of it, again, if I drill down a little bit more, is that I trust myself. I, I trust myself enough. Even if it's uncomfortable and people are not going to understand it, I trust myself enough. So, yeah, so I think it's a combination of knowing my intention, but it's a deep self-trust. And that Mm -hmm. self-trust, something that I said earlier, can only come because I've forgiven myself. I don't hold on to the things that have happened in my past. Again, it's the shame. I don't hold on to this idea that I'm wrong because of X, Y, Z. I've taken accountability I've taken responsibility. I've interrogated those sources of shame. Is it true? Is it not true? What actually makes it true? Or is it someone else's opinion that I've taken as a part of myself? So I ask myself a lot of questions, which leads me to a point of trusting myself, even when it's uncomfortable. Mm. So that's my very long-winded answer to your question. (laughs) No, I mean, it's taking me to a difficult conversation which you've changed your mind on. And I'm wondering if we can bring it up now, which is around children. You said, you know, I've changed my mind on on children. And this can be a very difficult conversation for many women to have, not only with themselves, but with their partner, or with their friends, um, because it can be met with a lot of resistance. Can you talk to me a bit more about your mindset around how it's changed on this subject? I wanted to jump on in and take a moment to thank you for listening to the Live Well, Be Well show. 
It brings me so much joy to hear how stories on this podcast have helped you get the most out of life. And it's my mission to help even more people do the same. To achieve this, I need you to help me grow this show. So please share the link with a friend or maybe even drop it into the group chat. Yeah, and I I think this is this is an area that I felt important to bring up because it's something that I'm currently in real time navigating. So I'm still working through my thoughts around it and nothing is fixed, but it's it's an area that has brought up shame. And it's interesting because it's not as if I feel the shame. I don't feel wrong for changing my mind. I actually feel quite liberated every time that I change my mind about something because I have new information to work with. But where I've encountered shame is seeing just how many other women experience shame around wanting to be child-free. So to be more specific, the, the context for me is that I never grew up thinking that I want to be a mother, having that kind of um, intuitive, deep knowing that I want to be a mother. I've just never really had that. But over the past few years, I came to a realization that actually I do want to have children. I would love to have a long-term partnership with someone and to have children. Even as many as six was my idea in my mind. I was like, I want a big family. (laughs) I was like, I want a big... I'm like, that's expensive. (laughs) That's expensive. I want a big family. I'm from a big family. In my mom's family, there's 10 of them. My family is huge. It's massive. So from going from, I, I really don't have this intuitive nudge to have children to, you know what, I could, I could easily have six, you know. And then in the past year, or more so, more intensely in the past six months, I just started to ask myself different questions about the kind of life that I want to live and the things that I want to do in the world, the kind of freedom that I want to have. What would my ideal partnership look like? I just started to deepen. I love asking myself questions. So I just started to ask myself more questions about these things that I firmly say that I want. And then I came to the realization very recently that actually, as much as I would like to have children... I would also live a very full and fulfilled life without children. That a part of me wants to live a selfish life where I get to be a wonderful aunt. I I already am a brilliant, brilliant aunt. I love my nieces and nephews. But also, maybe I really enjoy that because I get to give them back to their parents after, you know. And then I get them back for the half term and then we have fun and then I give them back and I do my thing. Maybe I'm okay with that for the rest of my life, (laughs) right? But there was this thing around... Right. And my friend Ruby Warrington talks about this quite a bit. She has a book, a wonderful new book out called Women Without Kids. And she talks a lot about how women will feel just the most shame around wanting to live a selfish life, a life where they get to focus on themselves, a life that is free and they get to experience closeness and pleasure just in different ways. You know, there's this immediate idea that not wanting to have children means that you're... um, that you wanting this thing and and this deep knowing means that there's something wrong with you. You're supposed to want it, that you're somewhat broken because you don't want this thing that everyone wants. That's the word that I was trying to call. I don't want to interrupt, but it's that broken, isn't it? It's like, oh, so why don't you want children? Or can you not have children? Or it's mad that it seems to be a choice that obviously there's a reason why you're not going to have children. It's this concept. And I had... um, 
a professor from UCL on here last season who's written three books around happiness. And he said something which I think you'll like, um, where he said, what we know from research are the people who are the happiest are women who, are, who don't have children. They are the women who we have found to be the happiest. And as he told me that, it was single, child-free women was his, was his line that are the happiest. But as he said that, it was everything that we're taught, not in society, that is happy. So it mm. was like a very interesting conversation. Um, and the amount of women that wrote back to me after that, and I have a lot of girlfriends in my life that have chosen that exact route that actually, you know, yeah. I feel really fulfilled and this isn't for me and this is my choice. Um, and it's amazing that it can still be met with so much resistance. Exactly. So that's the unique place that I'm in right now where I'm asking myself questions around this very big thing, you know, and mm. um, encountering shame, but just in a very different way, not even my own shame, just the societal shame that exists around me. But I think the wonderful thing is that I know myself. I know myself so well and I trust myself that I've kind of created this um, force field around me where I can notice what happened, what is happening externally and the external shame, but I won't allow that to penetrate my field. I won't allow that to be mm. a part of me. And I think, again, it's that thing of allowing it to be a constant practice and asking yourself questions, you know, is this my stuff or am I getting this from the outside and then making it my stuff? Um, so, yeah, so that's where I'm at. That's something that I'm changing my mind and exploring right now. It's interesting, isn't it? This, this concept that we have when, it, when we feel something, but actually when you're in a relationship with somebody else or a partnership where that affects both of you, I've had a few friends that have really struggled with having that conversation yeah. um, because it's a difficult conversation to have. Have you shared that openly? Is that something that you feel has been received in a good way? Like how has, mm. that, how has that eloped in your own life? Yeah, it really was received well, actually, in my most recent partnership. And I was very lucky that even though we're no longer together now, I was very lucky that I was in a relationship with someone that also values changing your mind when you have new information. Not in a flaky, unreliable way, um, which is also very subjective because someone else could say it's flaky and un unreliable. You said this last week, but you're like, actually, no, I just have new information that I can really work with to decide something different. So I was lucky mm -hmm. in that I was with someone who is also similar to me in that regard. And we had so many wonderful conversations around it and we were on the same page. He's also someone that hadn't thought about having kids, but through our relationship together, we both thought, actually, I think we could do this and we want to do this. But at the same time, if it doesn't happen, we're still going to be very happy and we get to explore different things together, etc. So I think I was lucky enough that I was with someone who's very open-minded, someone who was able to be quite fluid, someone who didn't have a fixed idea about what they want or don't want. But I have no idea what a future partnership would look like. But I do know that this is something that I would lead with. I'm still in that place of exploring it, trying to... Um, make sense of it myself to decide. But I know that it's one of those conversations that can be very, very, very difficult for people. So I haven't yet had a chance to kind of experiment or to experience it in a different dynamic. But in the most recent one, it was really beautiful to know that 
it can be actually okay for me to not have an answer right now, even if I did a year ago. Mm. And I also think that's such a big part of acceptance, right? That you don't always need the final answer. You know, you said something quite profound on, I need to be aware that it's how I feel, not external influences that are are making me feel a certain way or making me have a decision or a thought. How can people recognise that it's themselves feeling that feeling as opposed to an outside judgment? Hmm. I think even when you strengthen that muscle of self-awareness and self-trust, it's always going to be a challenge depending on what the context is and what you're actually experiencing. But I think that there are different ways that you can build that trust within yourself. Just having strong internal boundaries, right? Essentially, which is when you know what is my stuff and what is someone else's stuff. But to even know what your stuff is, you need to know what your needs are. You need to know what you Mm. want in life. You need to know what your desires are. You need to know what your yeses are. You need to know what your noes are, right? So I think it's that. There's probably more to it than that, but that's what I can think of. You you have to know what your stuff is to begin with so mm-hmm. that you can, you can compare it to the external information that you're receiving. But I do think it will look different from time to time. Sometimes maybe it will be a little bit harder to tell whether it's your intuition or your, or your self-trust or whether that external information is actually useful in some way. Um, so yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a hard question, but maybe it's one worth exploring for anyone listening Mm. yeah I think it's interesting I think that questioning ourselves is is a big one it's only because you you've mentioned around you know having some difficult conversations recently Mm. and um and I think it's 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 where it's on the you know the periphery of my mind of having these conversations on that self-reflection on is this really what's going to make me happy right now is this really what I'm feeling or is this an external influence? Because they're big questions to ask ourselves. And shame, again, can foster that to not allow us to reflect. Agreed. So, Africa, for anyone um, kind of listening to this and, you know, hearing so many different ways on how you've approached shame and how you're still addressing shame, because, again, Mm. it's, as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's a it's something that you're making sure that you address every day through open conversations. What would you say for anyone needing to have that conversation right now, a tool or a technique that they can implement to start, to start addressing how they're feeling, to start feeling less shameful in their approach towards this? I would say the first question can be, what are you feeling shame about? And these are questions that can be seemingly simple, but I think they can bring out so much. What are you feeling shame about? And then you can follow that up with, is that true? And if you find or you think that it is true, what evidence do you have that it's true? Because these are all beliefs, ultimately, the things that we believe about ourselves. And then the last thing you can ask yourself is, what's a belief that you can use to replace the existing belief? around shame. And I actually have a full podcast episode on this that maybe you could share with everyone. And it's around shifting and releasing your limiting beliefs. And I talk about shame in there quite a little bit because ultimately what we're talking about, yeah, our beliefs. What do you believe about yourself? What do you believe is wrong with you? And is that actually true, right? 
Is there any evidence? If you truly believe that it is a yes, what evidence do you have? Because you actually mm -hmm. have to look for proof. And if you firmly believe it to be true, that means you feel that you have proof on some level. So then you have to work on changing the belief. I know that you have to go. Um, we've had such a beautiful conversation. We've had many questions in for you. Um, but I'd wonder if I could just ask you one um, because I feel like I couldn't leave this without and we'll make it very quick. But for Emily, I'm going to pick the first one that's come to the list of beautiful questions that came in for you today. Um, she asked a really beautiful question where she said, how are you learning to counteract the ingredients that contribute to shame? I'll come back to something that I've said pretty much throughout this conversation. It's questioning. I never... I don't believe everything that I feel anymore. Just because I feel shame or just because I feel guilt or just because I feel anxious, I don't buy that as the absolute truth. I question it. I'm curious about it, rather. Um, yeah, before I even question that, I'm a, I'm a very curious person. So, And the way that I work with it in my voice, and this might be a useful tool for anyone listening if you need it, but I remove the charge. When I feel something really intense, I remove the charge. So let's say I feel really anxious. Something happens and I feel really anxious. I can feel it in my body. Instead of just taking it as a fact and then it just consumes me and then I'm with it all day, I just say, huh, isn't that interesting that I feel this anxious? And then I, I say it in, in that way with my voice, with quite a light voice, even lighter than that. I'll make myself say that. Like, isn't that interesting that I feel this? So then I, I don't make it a part of me. I, I'm in a mode of observation. So that's what I do. Mm. And I do it quite a lot, actually. Whether mm. I'm about to get on stage or go into a very important meeting, having a difficult conversation, and I feel those very human feelings, I don't just buy them as a fact. I'm like, huh, isn't that interesting? And then that, for me, just removes the charge. So that's a way that I counteract shame and the different... I love the use of the word ingredients because that's what it is. Yeah. It's not... Shame is the final product, you know, it's the final soup, but there's so many different things that come with it. Such a good question. It's ah. such a good question. Honestly, we were overwhelmed. Honestly, I put it on just literally a couple of hours before and we had wow. a huge amount of questions regarding this oh. for you. We'll um, have to do a live so at some point we and, will. and finish the questions. I would love that. That's what we can do. 100%. Yeah. I would love that. Yes. And I'm sure everyone listening to this would love that. They'd love to be part of the conversation because this That's is something that affects everyone. And I am so grateful for your time. I'm so grateful for your honesty and your authenticity. Africa, thank you so much for coming on. I can talk to you for hours, as we both know. That's happened many times before. <laughs> <laughs> so before we kind of wrap up this podcast could you please just share with our audience and I'm sure they are already but we're going to put lots in the show notes but where they can find you how they can get in sure. touch with you of course so my main social media platform is Instagram you can find me at Africa Brook with an E at the end and I do have a podcast called Beyond the Self with Africa Brooke, where you can get more um, nuance just around even some of the themes that we have spoken about today. Quite a lot of them, actually. I think that's a place where I like to have conversations that remind us that, yes, there is a lot that is out of our hands, but there's so much that is within our control. So there's a lot on self-responsibility, self-accountability acknowledging your own shadows and your darkness and turning your mess into somewhat of a message that can be supportive. And then my website is africabrook.com and you can find me in other spaces. 
mainly through those channels. Amazing. Um, you always bring so much light to my day. So thank you so much um, for doing this and bringing so much light to this podcast, even on such a heavy topic. Thank you. I'm so grateful. And what you are doing with your work and your platform is just, it's absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Africa, for your wise words and refreshing honesty. Now, if you're someone who struggles to approach those difficult conversations, Africa shares with me her five-step method to make them less daunting and more productive. You can find this as a bonus episode on Live Well, Be Well on Apple Podcasts. And you can sign up for your free trial now. One last thing. I've created something just for you. It's a 30-day online course to give your well-being journey that extra boost. And it's totally free. Go to sarahandmacklin.com to download it now. There's a link in the description. And I'll see you on the next episode.